You are listening to Mark Hatmaker Rough and Tumble Raconteur. This is a grab bag of old school Western martial arts, resurrected indigenous ways and empirical musings tinged with a heavy dose of respect, admiration, let's call it hero worship, for these hosses of yore. Crew, this is Mark Hatmaker coming to you from the Comancheria. Today's topic, we're going to go back to something we discussed years ago, but I realize I'm not uh, throwing it out there for podcast ears. It's called Walk Like a Warrior. Now, if you are reading contemporary accounts, uh, historical accounts written by, and when I say contemporary, I'm talking about people who were there in the midst, not people who come far afterwards, including myself. Uh, these contemporary historical accounts written by soldiers, we're talking cavalrymen and dra- dragoons, settlers, scouts, pioneers, and other citizens of the American frontier, circa, let's say, the 1680s up to the 1880s. Now, I find mention that Native uh, Americans or Indians or savages, as they're referred to in the accounts, did not walk like white men. Now, of course, I'm using uh, phrases right now that are get, uh, the coinage of them are dated and we're not supposed to use words like that anymore. I'm just quoting from the accounts and I'm saying Indian savages, white men. You get what I'm talking about. Anyway, we're saying the Indians did not walk like white men. Their gait, stride, and foot placement is described often in poetic terms such as light or light-footed or fleet or gliding and oftentimes springy or spring-like. Now, these terms, while descriptive of the effect, do little to tell us of the how or why of the gait or perhaps we're referring to somebody, people are perhaps exaggerating about the movement. I'm going to tell you, I don't think we're getting any exaggeration whatsoever. We can find... uh, clues in the accounts given by trackers in any of the myriad Indian wars or skirmishes that riddled the continent in the first few centuries of the settling of the nation, the obvious telltale barefoot or soft impression of a moccasin is often a giveaway that you have a Native American track. Okay, so we say, okay, uh, moccasin or barefoot, likely not a so-called white man. But this is less so in the moccasin foot as more and more Anglo backwoodsmen started adapting this footwear. So you're not sure at that time which one you're going to say, a white man moccasin or an Indian moccasin. But there are a few accounts that mention how you can distinguish a Native American warrior's imprint from an Anglo track. And incidentally, the strides discussed were not used only by the warrior castes. Uh, We're talking about all the people of a given tribe. But as well, uh, we shall see, it might be of particular value to the warrior. And again, so this. This sounds like it's sort of a trained, ingrained stride. And this might be very important, even down to our current day health. So stay with me. The key, it seems to be in the direction of the stride. So here's self-experiment time. I want you to stand up right now, wherever you are, and and go for a brief walk. Now, I know if you're in a car and all this, you know, save it. But still, give yourself, do this experiment. This is mighty telling. A mere 10 to 12 steps will do it. While walking, look at your feet. Now, if you're like the vast majority of human beings, you walk with the toes pointed slightly out to the side. Many of us walk a little bit more out to the side when we realize. Now, stand stock still, as if you're listening to a long, boring conversation, perhaps someone like me who would talk to you in another podcast. Now, stand still, look down at your feet. Chances are you stand with your feet in the same toes-out orientation. Now, according to our trackers, the native warrior's imprint has zero toe-out orientation. In fact, the toes point in the direction of the walk. Now, is this so-called following the toe orientation and genetic quirk or Native, Native American skeletal structure? Or is this an artifact of primarily living barefoot or moccasin? Or is this a cognitive stride choice? So we got to break that down again. Now, we're going to say, is this just, hey, that's just the way uh, Native American skeletons are made. Or if you didn't have modern shoes on, uh, this is how you would walk. And again, or is this a choice? This is important three questions. We're going to be coming back to that.
Another difference noted by our trackers was weight distribution. See, when Anglos take a step, the heel lands first, followed by a rocking forward to the inside ball of the foot to push off for the next step. Now, you can even try it for yourself. Go very slowly, see what strikes first, how you roll forward and where the push off occurs. The native warrior track sees little heel imprint. It's there, but instead their imprint favors the balls of the feet and or the whole sole of the foot landing in one concerted unit as though one were treating the foot as a natural uh, snowshoe. So again, primarily weighted toward the ball of the foot. And in some cases, you're going to see more even planting. We're just saying the heel, it doesn't say the heel doesn't strike. You're just saying it does not lead the strike. Not a huge imprint there. So in the Native American tracks, the ball of the foot imprints then becomes deeper for rather than rocking to the next step, the calves are actively engaged to push to the next step. So let's say we can make the envision this step forward, land on the ball of the foot or slightly more in the sole. And then as we rock forward, we're pushing more with the calf muscles, just not leaning forward and falling to the next stride. There is an actual deliberate placement of each step. In essence, the balls of the feet are the first to make contact and the last to leave the earth with each step as you follow the toe with each stride forward. Now, if you experiment with this stride, you will find that it does lend itself to such descriptors as light, gliding, and springing. When you first start it, you'll have to, con I mean, if you decide to uh, go forward with it, you're going to have to consciously really make an effort to stay on it because we get used to this clomp, clomp, clomp stride the entire time. Now, one can easily imagine such a stride being of use in stalking. Many of us probably, who, if you were Hunt or Mahuacato, uh, you will adopt it because you're trying to be, remain more stealthy. And it's used in stalking, but it seems that it was a stride was a given amongst warrior populations. And the entire tribal population, it wasn't something, oh, now I'm being sneaky, I'll switch to this size, uh, stride. It's just the stride that was used. So, yes, it was used in stalking or skulking or war scenarios, but also in everyday life by young and old men and women and children alike. Again, we got to ask that question. Is this a skeletal quirk? Just, uh, you know, way biology made the skeleton? Is this an artifact of not using hard-soled footwear over the lifespan? Or is it design? That is a cognitive choice. Now, again, we'll come back to that. The contemporary accounts I mentioned, whether they be of the tribes of the Eastern Woodlands, the Plains Indians, or the bands of the Southwest, often discuss incidents of remarkable endurance demonstrated by Native Americans on the move. There are many, many, many stories of seemingly tireless uh, stamina related both admiringly and sometimes begrudgingly in military accounts from soldiers forced to face them at war. So we're, again, we're talking about people who are staying on the move, whether this is uh, uh, running or this is uh, just the walking or the, for the most part is referred to as this loping stride. This is curious, just, you know, mile eating again and again. It's not a speed thing. It's just the ability to continue to endure. Now, we'll discuss the uh, interesting running training tactic used by various tribes another day. Uh, but today, we're going to keep it slow. We're going to stay with this walk because this is really foundational and really remarkable to my mind. And this is also, again, how we build all of our black box uh, material. You want to really micromanage or get down to the devil is in the details. And the devilish details are what gives us the demon, whether it's in, uh, in, our, in our demonic uh, fighting practices or even down to uh, if you're living the warrior lifestyle and learning how I'm going to walk from here to my mailbox. I'm going to engage with every human being. I'm going to be alive and awake to it. So here I'm going to paraphrase two accounts to demonstrate that the aforementioned stride is one of conscious choice. So again, science shows no genetic quirk in this. This isn't something that's just, yeah, you're born this way. And some people say, well, it's probably the shoes throwing this off. Nah, not necessarily. We are, humans are social animals. We're highly Im imitative of one another, and we have a tendency to pick up what is around us. And again, we're going to take a look. This is likely a conscious choice here. General Ulysses S. Grant had under his command a Seneca Indian named Eli S. Parker. 
a remarkable man who, despite unforgivable intolerance for many, he served the United States with honor. He represented Native Americans with the plume and earned the respect of General Grant. Now, Mr. Parker's life deserves many words, but allow one anecdote to suffice as it pertains to our topic at hand. Now, Mr. Parker served as an engineer under Grant during the Civil War, and often there was occasion in which there would be long marches through the, quote, wilderness, unquote. We're talking, you know, it's tough terrain. We're talking backwoods, uh, and, you know, hills, mountain, ridge lines, swampy terrain. So after many days and many miles of this slogging trek, the Anglo soldiers were rightfully fatigued. Mr. Parker went to Grant and asked if he might make a suggestion to which General Grant replied, take command. Now, Parker instructed the soldiers to alter their stride from toes out to following the toe. He offered a few words on placement, but the main crux he related was that to follow the toes, engaging more muscles of the foot and more equally distributed, this more equally distributed the workload. Now, let's think about this. This is really fascinating. Here we have a Native American warrior who also happens to be an engineer able to articulate exactly how and why such an alteration in stride might be of value. The moral of this particular anecdote, according to the accounts that mention it, is that the trek through the wilderness was recommenced and the soldiers related that they were far more refreshed and better able to bear the workload with this method of locomotion. So far, it seems that there is more than enough evidence to at least experiment with this stride. But let's add one more piece to the conscious choice evidence column. Let's talk about walking uphill. Now, when moving uphill, Anglo tracks do not alter the toe-out orientation, whereas the Native American tracks abandon their follow-the-toe stride. So if we were tracking someone uphill and we look forward at them, there's a tendency to exaggerate our our Anglo toe-out stride. Now, what we find instead with the early uh, uh, Native uh, Americans, we're finding instead a toes-in stride. When walking uphill, hiking uphill, loping uphill, Native warriors and tribe members in general adopt a slight pigeon-toed gait. I find this mentioned in many accounts with seldom a mention as to why. But then, in an obscure passage, we find a nameless warrior instructing an Anglo who has adopted moccasins to toe in while following him up a slope. Now, why, our Anglo asks, do you want to go toe in? Quote, so that you don't slip. You can grip with your feet. So, in a barefoot self-experiment for myself, I find that there does indeed seem to be better traction with the toes-in method when scrambling uphill. Again, this might be more for the barefoot or the uh, close to minimal shoes or, or the moccasins, because you think about when you start turning in, the edge of the inward uh, edge of the toe starts providing a gripping surface, and you're, <clears throat> excuse me, you're back able to use those calves better to fire yourself uphill instead of just digging in with one point on each side, that inside ball of the foot, the big toe, to drive yourself up. <clears throat> excuse me. Now, over the course of a few months of consciously working these techniques, now I stand convinced that the follow the toes on flat ground and a toes in when going uphill are mighty, mighty useful adaptations. Initially, they call for more work from the calves that have been used to a lifetime of heel landing and rocking to the toes. You know, following the toes has let me know how long my calves have actually been dormant, despite if you do jump rope and uh, a calf race. This is a completely different animal. Some of us who may suffer from uh, so-called hip, well, not so-called, they are hip knee pains and problems like this. It might not be this uh, just 
or originating in the in the hips and the knees. There's many, many good uh, physical therapists out there who think there's a chance that uh, the way we move through many of our, particularly if you play sports, uh, we overemphasize lateral rotation and we do very little with the medial reta- uh, rotation. And what does that mean? Medial rotation is basically orienting to that toes forward, following the toes when you move. And often it becomes that we become very weak in this lateral rotation because we're, th- we're flinging that leg to the outside as opposed to actually balancing and moving to the inside. And often uh, there's many therapy modes that will use this sort of orientation to gradually reduce a lot of this knee and hip pain. So that's just food for thought or a little addendum to the side of it. Now, whether you try any of this as self-experiment or not is up to you. But I think we must all acknowledge that the conscious effort to make everything more efficient, including the mere walking strides, is a mighty thought-provoking exercise in ingenuity. And uh, what other bit of obviousness might we all be blind to? Again, that's the end of uh, today's sermon. But again, we'll be covering how this is obviously that's what this podcast does. That's what the blog does. That's what our Black Boss Project does. That's what all of our physical training products do. We're trying to get down to the bare basics in that Eli Parker mode to find out what exactly is going on here. And there are better ways to engineer it. And uh, if you're fascinated by such things, please like, subscribe, share the podcast, have a look at the blog, over a thousand something pages of martial research, history and scholarship there. And by all means, if you're hands on sore, take a look at the ExtremeSelfProtection.com, our black box training warehouse, where you can actually put a lot of this stuff into practice. And if you want to get together and play in person, uh, have a look there. We got a link to our upcoming Rough and Tumble Boot Camp coming up in August 2022. Take care of yourself, crew. Well, if you dig what we just discussed today, uh, I'd like to invite you to like and subscribe to the podcast. Hell, support it if you want. I'm not your dad. Do what you want. And if you're a glutton for punishment, uh, just visit our website, ExtremeSelfProtection.com. You'll find links to the blog, all of our products, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of more pages if you like musics.